Well, open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of James. We'll be in chapter 2 this morning, verses 14 through 26. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. In the Bible in front of you, if you're borrowing one from us, that's page 1012. Well, Hannah and Chris, we sure are glad to have you all here. And they've made fast friends with a number of you, and it will take time to work through the whole church. They're around, so don't be strangers. And pray for Chris as he preps to lead us next week. Won't make such a big deal out of it. We're doing the same big deal every week in singing, but it is a kindness from God when we receive a new leader. Well, some things you can see with your eyes. A tree, a building... Some things you can't see with your eyes. Um, Radio waves, for example. Um, The past, you can't see the past. Maybe pictures, maybe effects, but you can't see the past. Well, which category does faith go in? Can you see faith? Or is it one of those things you can't see? Let's read James' answer. Verse 14 through 26, chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also... Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with works, and faith was completed by works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, and in the same way, Was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as one body apart, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Well, we tend to think and talk about faith like it's like it's a gas, like it's oxygen. It's one of the things that you can't see. And of course, there's something to that. But not on this day and not in this letter from the Apostle James to these churches in the first century. They needed to hear that faith is not like a gas, you can see it. And so we've read this passage in James. Uh, The most controversial passage in his letter, we'll spend a little time untying a knot here, it's not too bad, but we'll need to spend some time on that. The most theological portion of his letter, the rest of his letter is related to it and flows to or from it, 
Um, but we'll do a little work of theology this morning because that's what he's doing, doing with us. Uh, we're right in the course of talking about our faith to remind ourselves that our faith is not in our faith. And I remind you of that this morning. Um, when we, we put our faith in our faith, we turn inward and subjective, where, where, we're, where, where we're looking to ourselves for an answer to the question of whether we're saved, rather than to the object of our faith, which is the work of Christ, which is objective and which is outside of ourselves. There's no being saved if all you've got is what's within yourself. So how does faith relate to that work of Christ? Well, we'll explore that before we're done. Well, this morning, James points us to something tied to ourselves, but is also objective, as far as this passage is concerned, uh, works. He's saying that if you want to see faith, then look at one's works. It's something like when uh, the two from the crowd had brought to Jesus the paralytic and lowered him through the roof, and Jesus said, he sees their faith. Having seen their faith, there is something to it. They were moved with confidence that Jesus was who he said he was and that he could heal the paralytic such that they would lower him down through the roof. They were that confident in Jesus and seeing the paralytic come down saw the invisible faith, the visible expression of invisible faith. We'll work our way through this passage this morning with three questions. Um, well, maybe not three questions. It's three points that have the word question in it. How about that? A good question, a fair question, and a question of life and death. Now, typically, we spend a little more time on earlier points and cash in that development and get a little shorter toward the end. Uh, not so here. The weight will either fall right in the middle or at the end. So a heads up. First, we begin with a good question. A very good question. Verse 14. What can we say? It's in Scripture. It's a good question. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? James sets the agenda for the rest of his passage. This is the subject. Ten times he is going to speak about faith and works in relationship to each other. James's subject is the relationship of faith and works. And the stakes are high, for he asks, can that faith save him? Presumably, seems like a rhetorical question, the answer is no. This uh, this opponent that he sets up, not likely thinking of a particular person in these churches, but, but a, a mood and a way of thinking and a, a, a strand of theology that's present in this church that is explaining so much of the raucous that they're experiencing and trouble with their quarrels and bitter jealousy and hateful words. Some among them, no doubt, are not in the faith, and that seems clear enough. And he is writing like a surgeon to divide the wheat from the chaff. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith? So he says, this is what he says, he says he has faith, but he does not have works. Can that faith 
save him? Apparently not. Now, this is a scary question, a troubling question. Because uh, apparently it's possible to have faith, a kind of faith that may look and sound, at least sound Christian, maybe to yourself, uh, and not be able to save you, in James's language there. A faith that, that doesn't work at the end of the day to save. And it should be a troubling thought to think that any of us would be in that place. And James doesn't mean for every hearer to hear that in the same way. But he is writing to a church and to churches that are overrun with this kind of problem. I don't believe our church is overrun with this exact problem. To some extent, I think we're listening in on a letter to uh, churches with this problem. And a way that we can benefit from this letter is not by pretending that we have the problem he's addressing and confessing it, but thanking God for the health that flows from getting this right. So we're not a church that would put up with uh, an understanding of Christianity that says it's me- mere words. Mere words. We're not saved by our works, but there is a transformation that comes. And that comes naturally and, and faithfully. And it flows from the word implanted and received. But I'm just saying that I'm not going to lay this on you as a guilty church. On the other hand, there are some who need to hear this this morning and should tremble before God Almighty. That you have been saying that you are a Christian, and you are not, for there is no Christian fruit. You must stop that at once, and repent from your sin, and turn to Jesus, lest you die in your sin. This is what's at stake. It's not just that faith is dead, and we're talking about that, It's that this form of self-deception is deadly for you. And in love, I appeal to you. Be on the edge of your seat. There is salvation for you. It is open to you if you will receive the implanted word. Now, having struck you fairly hard in the ear and in the heart with that word, let me offer some clarifications. Stumbling in many ways... Is that dead faith? No. James says we all stumble in many ways. He can hear the, the, the variety of hearers in his readership. Is sinning and then turning back to God, and sinning and turning to God, is that, that movement of sin and repentance in the Christian life, sometimes a little too much separation there, but nevertheless, that movement, is that, is that dead faith? Uh, no, that's not dead faith. Uh, James writes with the assumption that the Christian's hearing will respond in faith and speaks about sin and going after one who has wandered off into sin and, and returning to the fold. And that's very encouraging. Is growing slowly as a Christian uh, dead faith? Uh, no. Uh, I grow slowly, you grow slowly, we all grow slowly. Uh, more slowly than we'd want to grow on our best moments, and more slowly than, um, than maybe we should. Uh, but nevertheless, it's the nature of the thing, that God saves us, and we are not immediately, utterly, entirely transformed, although we are transformed from the inside and slowly out. Uh, is 
dead faith uh, being really discouraged as a Christian during a season? Nope. Uh, the word is a balm for our souls and a comfort to us. And it finds us in discouraged moments. And we have the Psalms for that. And on this side of heaven, uh, all creation groans. And sometimes we do too. And the Spirit makes up for that uh, by interceding for us. Is dead faith being distressed to some extent and at times about whether or not we are saved. Uh, no, that's not dead faith. I mean, all of these things could be a, a sign of trouble, but I, I'm just trying to put all bracket all of these as not what James is talking about. James says, if someone says, I have faith and there's nothing like in their life that relates with that confession or looks like Jesus, then their faith is useless. Uh, a little later, he'll say in verse 18, Oh, but if someone will say, You have faith and I have works. And James says, Show me your faith apart from your works. You can almost hear the individual saying, uh, I'm a Christian. Well, um, you're sleeping around. Well, you've been cooking the books and you plan to keep doing that. Um, I'm not, I'm not you, you're, you're cruel to your wife and there doesn't seem to be any remorse or whatsoever or cruel to your husband and manipulative and whatever. And there, there's nothing, there doesn't seem to be any change over time. Okay, the person says, all right, you have faith and I have works, or I, I have faith and you have works. In other words, you, okay, you can separate these things. Some people have this and some people have that. You've got this and you've got that. Um, no problem, I don't have works. Uh, I've got faith. And James says, well, show me your faith apart from your works. You can see he's arguing with a deluded individual. And uh, he's trying to protect the, the church and those who are faithful as they listen in on this. But he's also trying to protect all of us from going there one day. And he's trying to confront the one who actually would say these kinds of things. Calls them a foolish person. Uh, my understanding would be that this is somebody outside the faith. And James is doing surgical work to reveal as much. Well, it's a good question what James asks, even if it's unsettling. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works can that faith save him? There is a kind of faith, a kind of faith that cannot save. We move from a good question now to a fair question. That's a fair question. Does James even understand the gospel? Did you guys read verse 24? I have my kids, I'll tell you this every now and then, sometimes it turns into material. Um, it always helps me in the morning when I get up before they do, having me try to question out for me. And uh, <laughs> I picked it up this morning, and one of them, it just says, you know, their name, verse 24, what? <laughs> and I thought, they think I'm supposed to know what that means. And I put it in my little case, and I went to church. And um, I thought, well, I'll try to decipher what they mean when I get in the office. And I'm like, oh yeah, verse 24, brilliant. That's all you need to write. Wait, wait, what? They only missed one word. Wait, what? <laughs> see, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Well, let's go to the Apostle Paul. 
In Romans 3.28, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. It says the opposite. Right? Or Romans 4. Uh, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham? Even makes an argument from Abraham. Our forefather according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. It wouldn't be wrong for you to read the Bible and trust that it fits. Trust it fits and to trust the Lord with it and move on. So, so I'm not, I wouldn't shame anybody who isn't terribly stressed out about this. You trust the word and that's good. But there really ought to be enough of us in the room who are uncomfortable with, with that. Who, who it, all of us ought to recognize at the, at the level of grammar... There might be an argument from 24b, faith alone, in context, which I'll get to. But the level of the words here, it sure sounds like he's saying the opposite of the Apostle Paul. Does James get it? Does he get that works, if you're justified by those, right before God, just before God, by your works, according to Paul, you will have earned it like a wage, but that's not the gospel because your works don't work like that. Your works aren't good like that. You've got sin to be forgiven. And why would Jesus lead such a righteous life? And why would he die on the cross if our works could, could justify us? Or like they go together, you need two things. You need faith and you need works. And God looks at those two and goes one plus one equals justification. It's a fair question does James even understand the gospel? And it would be all right for us to move along in our Bible reading and not stop forever right here and trust it resolves in the mind of God. But it's also good for us sometimes on a Sunday morning to settle in and do a little bit of work together and to you know, get in the kitchen and open up the pantry and look at the tools and put some of those things to work to see if they don't reconcile and even harmonize, and I'll put to you that they do. Martin Luther, at least early on, was very upset at James in this book. He put it at the end of his Bible and, uh, and said some nasty things about it. You just got to read and know Luther. I thank God for Martin Luther. Probably kick him out of our church. <laughs> um, I'll do a Martin Luther for you maybe once every three years, and, um, and then I'll just say... Which I've had to do that before. I only do that every once or every three or four years. So, um, no, James is James is unusual. James is frustrating. This is why it's not only the most theological passage in James, but but the most controversial. Let me just work this through under several levels of context. So, first, historical context. James is writing before the apostle Paul wrote. Maybe before that we say James is not Paul. And while they share the same theology, Paul and James may use some words slightly different. And as it is, they have different audiences. And they write at different times. James is writing before the Apostle Paul. 
it is not likely that he is writing to directly contradict the Apostle Paul. But his writing is so close to Paul's expressions, it's very hard to imagine that James is not responding to Paul's teaching. When James writes, Paul's letters have not been written and circulated. Nevertheless, Paul is teaching, and Paul's teaching is in the system. And some are using Paul's teaching of justification by faith alone then to say, so you don't need anything besides faith as an excuse to neglect the poor. You see, the context of James's churches. As an excuse to let themselves go with the tongue. So neglecting one another and being cruel to one another. And they're actually using Paul's teaching and doctrine in order to do that. There's a very similar vernacular here. Paul and James do not disagree. The Apostle Paul will say, What shall we say then, after preaching his doctrine of justification by faith, by grace alone through faith alone, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Couldn't say it more strongly than that. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Water baptism, a picture of what happens with the Spirit. As we're united to Jesus, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We have the Spirit now and we have an animating life within us, God's very life animating, animating our own. You see, Paul makes an emphatic statement about salvation by grace through faith alone, but then he goes to qualify it and clarify against the suggestion that that means that then the Christian is saved by grace and does not change. Um, no, it's the nature of this saving grace that it changes you. Praise God. And that's one of the blessings of the good news of the gospel. So James does not disagree with Paul on that point. And Paul does not disagree with James. They have very different historical contexts. And I'll offer a contrast between them in a moment. It's a bit on the historical context in when James is writing. He's writing to correct uh, the manipulation of Paul's teaching and the abuse of Paul's teaching, not to correct the apostle Paul. That's historical context. Now, some observations from the literary context, the, the letter, it, letter itself. Remember James chapter 1 and how it began with the invisible, with the internal. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Uh, those trials lead to steadfastness, leads to completeness, perfection that you may lack nothing. And remember where he, where he ends. He ends by defining true religion as guarding your tongue, bridling your tongue, caring for widows and orphans and being unstained from the world with the largely outward expressions of that internal faith. Well, it intends for you to read the very end there of chapter 1 in light of the whole of chapter 1 which spoke of an implanted word within us, in which he said we were brought forth by the word of truth. This ties to the old promises in the Old Testament of a day when the Spirit would come and make us new all the way down into the heart. And James is talking about that, about the gospel that makes us new. We're forgiven of our sins, we're made new, and there's a transformation that happens. And that's a God-blessed and God-wrought transformation. Well, chapter 1 is kind of like this. 
This statement here, persons justified by works and not by faith alone, also needs the context of chapter 1 and even the rest of chapter 2. This passage here that we've read relates to the rest of chapter 2 that came before. Let me, let me just hook you into a few words. He, he's writing in response and development of his argument. Mercy, from verse 13, mercy triumphs over judgment. There's no mercy for the one that shows no mercy. And it's not that showing mercy earns you mercy, it's that showing mercy is natural to the one who knows they need it and knows all the mercy that they have received. And so now we're seeing what follows from faith, what practical matter follows from faith. Uh, The word faith in the very first line of chapter 2, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord of glory, Jesus Christ. And now he answers the question, well, what exactly is faith? And he doesn't go so much to the the content that we put our faith in, but what faith looks like when it's in and on you. Uh, The law was a matter of his subject in almost every line in the last five or six verses before this morning's passage. And perhaps this whole section answers the question, well, wait a second, I thought we were saved by faith and not by works of the law. He relates them here. And even that last word before the ending, that mercy triumphs over judgment, raises the question, well, what, what will have us secure in the day of judgment? And maybe that sense in which he's using justified. Whereas Paul is arguing from the life of Abraham, now to whole Bible context, the life of Abraham in uh, chapter 12 and 15 of the book of Genesis, where Abraham believes and it's credited to him as righteousness. He believes a promise that the world will be blessed through a son of his, his children, and uh, he believes that before it's come to be. He's about 100 before he even has a child. Um, and it's counted to righteousness before he has a child. The apostle Paul is looking at Abraham's life in chapter 22 of the book of Genesis when God tests that faith to show it genuine for Abraham's sake and ours and tells Abraham to take that one child he had in a very old age and God even said, salvation's coming through that specific child and take him up on the hill and offer him up to me. Kill him, in other words, a sacrifice. Abraham gets up the next morning and does it. How? Why did he do that? Well, he believed. And so we could see Abraham's faith on the page of Genesis chapter 22. We can actually see what we couldn't see earlier in the book. And I think it's okay to say that James is using the word justified a little bit differently. He's looking at that farther horizon of a judgment day. And Paul is looking very specifically at the moment in which Abraham Believes, And it's not that on that day we're justified by our works in the sense that Paul is talking about, but you can think of a judge will acquit you as guilty because you actually, excuse me, not guilty because you actually are not guilty. And we know that that's because of Christ's work for us and his death for us. We can be not guilty and we can be righteous before him. But there's another way to look at what's happening in a courtroom and that is on the basis of the facts and the evidence and what's in front of you. You declare somebody not guilty. And it's not that all the evidence actually made them not guilty, for they would be not guilty even if the evidence wasn't found. But on that day when we meet him, there will be all kinds of evidence, if you will. 
So I think James is using justification in that sense of a final horizon, a little bit of a different angle on the courtroom than how Paul is using justification, zooming in on the chronology of faith and works to follow. Very simply, Paul is looking at the moment of James's faith and looking forward and saying faith comes before works. James is looking at the testing uh, and to show his faith genuine in chapter 22 of Genesis, where the works are evident, and saying, look, the works follow from the faith. Some reflections on historical context and then literary context, a little bit on the whole Bible's context. And now the immediate context. Just Sometimes it's this easy, if I could call it that. Just look at the way that he is relating faith and works all around verse 24. They don't hang in midair. This is not a paragraph on how works justify you. It's a paragraph on faith and the kind of faith that justifies. So, faith is revealed by works. Verse 18, show me your faith apart from works and I will show you my faith by my works works. Faith is accompanied by works, verse 22. You see that faith was active along with works. Faith is completed by works. And faith, verse 22, was completed by works. And faith is animated by works, verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And that's a helpful illustration. Okay, so how do you know the body's alive? The body moves. And the movement of the body says something about what's going on inside the body. It goes together. And so I said this morning, at the beginning, you can see plants. Well, you can tell whether a plant is alive or dead by looking at the plant. I could tell you. We have our annual plant reference. I don't do them. Okay? Plants do me. You look at it long enough and it dies. Water it and it dies. Don't water it and it dies. I know what you'd say. I've read some of the websites for two minutes and I lost interest. <laughs> you can look at a plant and you can tell whether it's alive. You can look at a creature, an animal, a person, and you can tell whether they're alive by their movement. The body apart from the spirit is is dead. Faith is animated by works. It's also filled up by works. Verse 23, the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed it was credited to him as righteousness. Fulfilled there is likely not that sense in which we mean, you know, the scriptures make a promise here and later it's fulfilled in Christ's coming. But it means that earlier in Abraham's life he had faith and it was credited as righteousness and that passage was filled up. It was completed when the works showed up. The picture was completed. The dots were there and the lines were drawn and the picture was filled out, fulfilled, completed when Abraham worked that faith out. So that's how even the immediate context and some words help us. Here's the deal. Paul and James write to different audiences and maybe here's the payoff for that longer center section. In our lives, we will meet two kinds of people. As a pastor, I meet two kinds of people. I am one of two kinds of people. You are. Sometimes it depends on the day. The first kind of person says, how could I ever be saved? 
I'm so sinful. I'm so bad. And Paul's answer to that person is, you are worse off than you think. Way worse off than you think. And the good news is that salvation is by grace through faith alone. You're right. You bring your works to God, and that doesn't deal with your guilt and sin. And as it is, that's not the righteousness that he asked for. They're filthy rags. But he is a God who saves by grace through faith. So just look at Abraham, whom he counted righteous before he had any works. So that first person says, I'm so bad, I cannot be saved. And we need to directly answer that. No, you're worse than you thought. And salvation is by grace. Praise the Lord. But there is another kind of person who says, I'm fine. So the one says, how could anyone be fine before a holy God? I'm not. There's an answer. The next person says, what's the big deal? I'm fine. I said the prayer. I confessed the things. I say this with my mouth. And that person needs to hear from James. Faith produces works. Or it's useless. It can't save. It's dead. What good is it? Augustus Toplady, an 18th century hymn writer. Grace cannot be severed from its fruits. If God gives you St. Paul's faith, you will soon have St. James's works. Our faith is not in our works, but our faith does produce them. There's even a wordplay here in verse 20. Uh, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Um, two different Greek words there. They kind of sound alike. Let me, let me make that happen for us in the English. Uh, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works doesn't work? It doesn't work. Like It doesn't work. It doesn't do anything. Like Look at it. It doesn't do anything. And it doesn't do anything for you. That's what he's saying. So that's how I think Paul and James relate, which is to say that they relate beautifully and perfectly. With slightly different words, Paul would have said and does say about the same thing. And James embraces the same gospel Paul preaches. Well, when we come to this passage, for obvious reasons, uh, a certain contrast lights up in our mind. The contrast between James and Paul. Uh, maybe another contrast lights up after we examine that for a bit, and that is the contrast between faith and works. But reading James on his own terms leads us not to either of those, but to a different contrast. And so if we can, if we could, get Paul out of our head for a moment and just read James on his own terms. What James is offering us is a contrast between one kind of faith and another. A kind of faith that is dead, that isn't good for anything, that can't save, and a kind of faith that does save. Now, I'll offer a little qualification here on this matter of how I'm talking about how faith saves. I won't get this granular that often. But it's worth saying, because we know that Christ saves, right? 
So in this sermon, I'm saying things like faith saves, and I'll say that again. By that, we don't mean that faith, our faith, is the ground of our salvation. God looks at the faith and says, that's what I need, that's good enough, therefore you're saved from your sins. Rather, he looks at the work of Christ, and we're saved in our sins on account of the work of Christ. But we're actually looking to the work of Christ, that's faith. Faith, we say, is the instrumental cause of salvation. It's not the ground of our salvation, it's not the ground of our justification, it's the instrumental ground of instrumental cause of our justification. It's the instrument. It's the vehicle. Uh, salvation travels through it. It's uh, receiving is another good word for faith that some of the biblical authors will use. Works is a kind of instrumental cause of salvation, but not the effective cause, but the accompanying cause. It rides like a sidecar along with faith. It's joined to faith. It's inevitable with faith if you add time. This matter of two kinds of faith, a dead kind of faith that doesn't save and a living kind of faith that does save is the point of James' concern into which we turn our attention for the next five minutes or so. And with all the work that we've done, this will come easy. So let me very simply preach the passage to you in those categories. James is addressing us concerning the danger of dead faith and also the prospect of living faith and the nature of living faith. Dead faith is dead to others. If someone says uh, he has faith but he has no works, Can that faith save him? Well, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says, go in peace, be warm and be filled. Go in peace is a way of sounding very religious. It's on the lips of others throughout Scripture who wanted to sound very religious and didn't do anything about it. Go in peace, be warmed and be filled. Did everyone hear that? It was nice for myself to hear that. And then the person leaves and you do nothing and forget. It's not just average forgetfulness. This is the pattern of a certain life. Dead faith is dead to others. And that's because it is dead to God. There's another illustration here in verse 18 of demons. You believe that God is one and you do well. Well, we should confess that God is one. He is one. That's That's good orthodoxy. And the demons have it. They're very orthodox. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. Oh, they're alive, but there's no allegiance, and there's no trust, and there's no love. And he's writing to those who are dead. There's no response to God. Even the demons have a response. It's just not a response of faith. It's a kind of faith. It's a faith that knows the right thing in the mind, but is unresponsive to the God of heaven. With, with love that reflects the implanted word. Uh, dead faith is dead to others because it is dead to God and therefore it is dead to you, useless, worthless. And this is another way of saying, this matter of saying one thing, a saying faith, as a friend put it this week, a saying faith versus a saving faith. One who says one thing and does another is a divided person a double-minded person, 
Someone with a divided soul. Do you have a divided soul this morning? Are you living two lives? One in terms of looks and and speech, and one in terms of action that does not match. There's nothing like speaking to somebody who is sure they're in the faith and there's zero change or heart to change, even if they confess that change is right. And I would want to comfort a sensitive soul who's struggling under the thought of not being a Christian this morning. Remember my qualifications at the beginning. But recognize part of guarding the gospel in our own church is being willing to call this out and put our finger on it in the way that James does, in the way that these churches need to, in the way that we must be willing to. There's no sentimental commitment to somebody because they're related to somebody or been around here a long time or gave a lot of money. He's addressed partiality. No, this is a deadly faith and it's deadly to those who have it. But thank God there is such a thing as living faith and we can tell the difference even with our our eyes. It's a faith that's alive to God. The scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Abraham, a friend of God. And friendship by Jesus is defined and expressed and seen through obedience to God. And Jesus was a friend of God, a father, and obeyed his father. And we are friends with God and obey him. And and Abraham was a friend with God. And you could see it by how he took his son up that mountain. He loved the Lord more than his own son. And Abraham failed in many ways and stumbled in many ways. But there was a push-come-to-shove moment. And he could see his faith, and so can we, on the page. Abraham had a living faith because he was alive to God. And this kind of faith is also alive to others because it's alive to God. Consider Rahab. In the same way, she was a prostitute. In the same way, uh, and in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute, justified by works, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Oh, very different than Abraham, and I think she's listed here as a contrasting character, and we all need contrasting characters in the Bible. Not all of us feel like Abraham. Some of us a little more like Rahab. Not all of us have Abraham's past, although it's not as good as you'd think. Some of us more like Rahab. We have the father of the faithful, and then we've got a prostitute. We've got a famous Old Testament patriarch, and we have a an obscure Gentile woman on the page of the Old Testament. They're both in the faith. They both showed works. Abraham to God in that instance. And Rahab held nothing back when God's people came to her door and needed refuge and intelligence and she sent them on their way. A godly woman of faith and yes, a very new believer. You can see it early on. And we should look for it and commend it and call it as such. That's what a Christian does, we should say to each other. That's an evidence of the Spirit, we should say to each other. The God of grace gives more grace and He's given grace to you and His grace is at work in you. I can see it. That's what faith looks like. We can say to each other and commend to each other. And if we mean to be genuinely encouraging with words like that, then we need to be able as well to say, Faith does not say that and do that. And if you separate faith from works, that faith cannot save. 
Well, Abraham, friends, held nothing back from God and neither did Rahab. And if your faith is in the Lord Jesus, you are capable of astonishing, even biblical feats of faith by the grace of God. Look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Look at his faith and his obedience. Bask in his grace and in his mercy towards you. And just see the kind of mercy that you can show to each other. Consider how he held his tongue before the cross. And consider that you really can hold yours. And consider how he came to you though he was rich in your poverty. And how the riches that he's given to you. And you can be generous with your brothers and sisters as well. It's a beautiful thing when this happens. Thank God we can see our faith. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for a stern word. And it is, as well, an encouraging word. For it is nice to know that you don't leave us in our sins, but you change us. You give us a new heart, and you give us the Spirit, and you write your law in our hearts, and you make us sensitive to you, and you make us to feel uh, concerned for our sin, and you convict us, and you change us, just as we've sung about. We really meant that. And it's really true. And we pray that you would bring about the visible expressions of our invisible faith so that we might know you have really changed us. And we pray that you would make us a church that spots these things and encourages one another with them. And that you would make us a church sensitive enough, loving enough, tenacious enough, and jealous for Jesus' glory enough to call out dead faith when we believe that's what we're looking at. But of course, it's you that know the heart, Father, and you're the one who can draw us, whatever our heart. We pray that you would do a profound work in all of our hearts today. We thank you that you're a God who does just that by grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.